Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Amen. Praise God. Welcome. Let me just say for, for, for those here for the first time and for those of you watching at home, we're, we're in the middle of a series on end times things. And if you're joining us at this point, then you really do need to go to our website and catch up on the first four or five parts of the end time series. And especially this morning, I, I, I'm not joking when I say that you cannot possibly take in the concept of hell, which is our topic for this message tonight as well. You can't possibly expect to take in the, the biblical concept of hell in like half an hour. And I, I, I get very frustrated uh, in this job because people come to you and, and they say, um, tell me about the Bible. Come on, um, come on, get on with it. And, and, and you cannot do that. You, you'll never learn, you'll never grow, right? And, and particularly with this subject. So please, t take seriously what I'm saying to you. Please go to our website and, and follow up on parts one, two, three, four, and five of the End Time series. There's much there you need to hear. And don't judge me on, on one message, right? Because there's an awful lot in it and you need to get the whole picture. So stick with the game plan. The second thing I'd like to say is if you think preaching on hell is easy, it is not. It's absolutely torturous. Torturous. It's awful. And I would rather not preach about hell at all. But that, I can't do that. It's our job, right? It's our job as the church. The, the, who in the Bible tells us the most about hell? Jesus. Who loves you more than anyone? So that makes sense then. You see, there is a hell. Friends, there is a hell. And the one thing that Jesus said in Matthew's gospel was that it was going to be a surprise. Remember of all the people that ended up there, they all said, what, what, me, Lord? <laughs> am I being rewarded or am I being punished? There was not one category in Matthew's gospel who weren't surprised. Everyone in the parable of the sheep and the goats, everyone was surprised at the judgment. And you might, like my friend that I mentioned this morning, you might think that you've got this all figured out. Remember I told you of a Christian who came to me furious because I said he had a judgment up ahead and he considered that he didn't. <laughs> I said, well, I'm sorry, you're actually wrong. I know five virgins that thought they didn't as well. Five virgins that were once had oil, but something in their mentality made them think, ha, I'm born again, I've got filled with the Holy Spirit, that's it. And they fall asleep and the bridegroom comes, it's the second coming. The bridegroom comes and what's happened? He takes the five that are filled and leaves half of those behind. So, folks, take it seriously. This is not a joke. Far, far from it. The cross is not a joke. And Christ died to save people from hell. That includes me. And the more I study this subject, honestly, the more sobering it becomes. And I've preached on it many times, but... I must say, just this time it has completely blown me out of the water because I see the seriousness of it all. Turn to Genesis chapter 6 a moment and take a look at this. These are some hard verses. Genesis chapter 6 and verses 11 to 17 I'm going to read. Genesis chapter 6 and verses 11 to 17. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt and sorry. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy them, both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 foot long, 75 feet high, and uh, wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower and middle decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. I love the character of Noah because he's one of the first characters in the Bible who really takes God seriously, who really takes the warning of an impending judgment seriously. You know, the ark is a picture of the rapture. The rapture is when the saints, the church, is taken out of the earth and we meet the Lord in the air. At the same time, there's seven years of tribulation on earth. The floodwaters come in and then the ark came back down to earth after the trouble had subsided. It's a picture of the church being raised out and coming back with Christ onto the earth. This is about us. What you just read, even though it's Genesis, it's a, it's a warning for the end times church to be as Noah, to take it seriously like Noah took the warning seriously of impending doom. Okay? Now, one of the problems with the church is when it comes to judgment, when it comes to heaven and hell, we are weak, we are wishy-washy, we have no firm foundation, and people can sense that. Now, you may wonder why those around you don't get saved, why your work colleagues, your family, your friends don't come to the Lord as you witness to them. When I, can, I, you know, I can tell you some of the reasons. Because there's a lack of faith or, or confidence within us about what we say. You see, if you're born again, that's one thing. Salvation is one thing, but assurance of your faith is another. When someone is assured of their faith, they have such confidence that people pick it up. Right? And that is such a winning thing. You can tell when someone really believes that they're born again. You know what I mean? But it's not just, assurance is not just for salvation. But that's all we ever hear it associated with. Assurance is also for many other biblical truths, such as hell. And when people start poking you or, or questioning what you believe, you need to have great assurance around your you know, principles, your doctrines. And the one we're looking at now, heaven and hell. I remember walking down the street once in, in, in Ireland and this guy stopped me and he was from a cult. And he, he ran into a load of spiel, you know, to try and convince me about his, his cult. And I, it was awful. <laughs> and when he finished, I was standing there, yeah, 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 yeah. And when he finished, I looked at him and I said, you know what, friend? Not only do I not believe that, but you don't even believe it. And you know, he crumbled beneath, or in, in front of my eyes. He was like, yeah, I don't think I do. I. You know, and I began to witness to him. And it was, it was darkness and light. As I told him about Jesus, he could see that I believed, 
right? And that's what I'm talking about, but not just, as I say, for salvation. There are many other truths, and this one particularly, that we need to become very au fait with, very familiar with, in the last days, okay? So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to hopefully give us ourselves some assurance of what we believe in terms of end times in relation to heaven and hell. The number one question that the lost ask of us is, why doesn't God do something? When the lost see the world that we live in and they see the chaos out there, they look at it and they say, why doesn't God do something? about the chaos, about the tragedies, about all that we see. If, if your God was real, He would have stopped this. If your God was a God of love, this would never have happened September the 11th. So don't talk to me about your God. And you need to have such confidence in being able to reply to that. Biblically based confidence. When someone asks you a question like that, the first thing I'd say to you is this. That's a valid question. It's a very valid question. If I'm saying that my God is all-powerful, almighty, and a loving, eternal God, and then the planes fly into the Twin Towers, no wonder you asked that question. You'd be a bit odd if you didn't. Why didn't God do something? And the second thing to realize about that question is that that question is a hunger for judgment. Why didn't God do something? You see? And the irony is that this hunger for judgment comes mostly from the, the lost. From the lost. From the world. They cry out, why doesn't... And the church is often quiet. In fact, at best, in terms of judgment, at best, the church is vague. At best, I find believers vague about the things of judgment and heaven and hell. At worst, they're apathetic. Couldn't care less. As long as I'm saved what does it matter sort of thing. But I like Noah because Noah took judgment very seriously. The Bible speaks about judgment two ways. It says there is a futuristic judgment. There's a judgment day. Absolutely true. Amen. There is a, a future judgment to come, the day of the Lord. But as well as that, it speaks about a present ongoing judgment that we're all in every day. It's in Galatians. It's well, a man shall reap what he sows. And I'll, I'll cover that a little bit in a moment. So there, in one sense, judgment is a, is a continual, you know, always with us. There's a future one, but a man shall reap what he sows. It's just the way God set up the earth. Let me give you an example of how man reaps what he sows. Do you know the Greek word for judgment? Is the word crisis. Now tell me. Is God judging the earth? Is there a crisis on the earth today? There is you, you, so many now, you couldn't count them. We have a health judgment. Sorry, crisis. We have an environmental crisis. We have a social crisis. We have a nuclear crisis. An ecological crisis. You can go on all day. And as you look at these crises around the world, it's actually part of the law that God set in place. A man shall reap what he sows. Why doesn't God do something? Well, you need to exhaust the question, analyze the question. Let's just take one of those, environmental crisis. There's a lady called Rachel Carson, and she wrote a book called Silent Spring. And in that book, she decided to go uh, to a river in India, 
and to look at why the people around were starving, why there was cancer in so many of the residents around the river, why so many people were blind. Because those people were crying out to God, God, why are we starving? God, why has my mom got cancer? God, why am I going blind? And Rachel Carson began to follow the river. And what did she find? She found that men, to kill mosquitoes, were pouring DDT, a disinfectant, a carcinogenic, into the, the river. And the, the fluids were running down. The Indian ladies were washing in the river. The plant life, the animal life was dying, having a knock-on ecological effect. And she got a shock because her investigations brought her to this conclusion. That wasn't God. <laughs> that was you. You brought that crisis upon yourself. You did that, you know, so there's no point in shaking your fist at God. And God calls this, it's part of the law that he has set up for us. Sorry, it's the law of cause and effect. And there's nothing wrong with the law, by the way. The law of cause and effect, it's a judgment of God. It's part of, of the thing he's put on the, in the world. In the world that you live in. And it's great because I can cause you good. I can do you good. But the trouble is, man is evil. And so man causes evil and wickedness. There was nothing wrong with the law that God put in place. You see? And the tragedy is about the law of cause and effect is so often it's the innocent that suffer. Look at me a moment. Do you know the Indian lady who washes in the river and goes blind? You understand this. It is not God who's judging her. It's not God that caused it. Right? It was men who put the DDT in the water. That's who caused it. And do you know when you see an Afghan boy go out into the fields and play and get his legs blown off by a cluster bomb? Don't shake your fist at our God because he didn't put it there. Cluster bombs are evil and wicked and it was men that put it there. But nonetheless, it's still the law of cause and effect. And God put that law in place so that we could do good, cause good to one another. But what do we do? We cause so much harm. And the sad thing is, the reality is, that it's the innocent, the innocent that so often suffer. If only we did thing God, things God's way, we would have a world in which there is harmony, order, and health. Do we have that? No, we don't, because of men. Instead, we have a world of, a world of disharmony, disorder, and disease. And it, further than that, the evil that men do passes from generation to generation. God puts it like this. He said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are sick. They didn't do anything. Cause and effect. I grew up in Belfast in the middle of a war zone. I hated it. And day after day, night after night, there were bombs and bullets. Next door neighbor blown to pieces outside our front door. The next house up, just two houses up, he joined the IRA. He killed three men. He ended up, you know, doing a life sentence. So the next door up, he was shot dead in his doorway. John Heathcliff, a guy who used to look after us when we were kids. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. And I could look around as a young man and say, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Answer, nothing. It's the previous generations. It's the law of cause and effect. People have sown evil. They have sown bigotry and bitterness 
and now I am reaping the effect of it. You see? And this is an erstwhile judgment of sorts. I'm just saying, folks, when you see these things happen, because the lost do, and they say, why doesn't God do something? You understand that when someone's, you know, washed in the river and they're dying of cancer, that's not a vindictive God. That's a careless human race that doesn't look after one another. I arrived in the UK in the same year that there was the foot and mouth crisis. Now, who caused that? I remember farmers crying at the sky, crying up on the BBC News, where they were shaking their fists as their cows and their cattle from generations of families that had raised, you know, great cattle herds, and they were burning in the distance, shaking their fist at God. Why have you destroyed our livelihood? Who destroyed those animals? Men. Because men fed cows to cows and sheep to sheep, disrupting the natural order of God, and they brought the judgment upon themselves by disregarding the fact that God said, you are actually your brother's keeper. That's what you are. And you were to look after one another, but they didn't do that. They, what was it, uh, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Turn to Romans a moment. Look at this. Romans 11, chapter 20, uh, Ro Romans 11, 22. Romans 11, 22. It's a good scripture, this. Romans eleven twenty two, 22, nice and short, but very powerful. Consider therefore, says Paul, the kindness and the sternness of God. Or in your version, it may say the goodness and severity of God. Consider therefore the goodness and severity of God. Just turn back with me a moment to Genesis chapter 6. I want to show you the, just how bad the situation on earth was. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. This is how bad the human race had become. I want you to understand why there's a hell, why there's a judgment. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. Then the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. I don't know if that's the, the saddest line in the Bible, but it's a very big contender. Imagine God having made the human race with the purity of heart that he has and then seeing the corruption that entered through sin and now looking at his own children and saying, you know, wow, their thoughts and their hearts are now so corrupt that it's only evil all the time. So what I will have to do is flood the earth. I will wipe man from the face of the earth, the man I love and the man I made. And I will save only righteous Noah who takes me seriously. Now, when people hear this, many Christians I'm talking about, never mind the lost, many Christians cannot cope with chapter 6 and chapter 7, chapter 8, when they see that God flooded the earth because of sin. Many Christians just will not accept that. Isn't that... I think you're crazy if you don't accept it. We serve a holy God. He's a holy God. He's an all-consuming fire. He's not like you. If your child was only evil all the time, you know, you, you may put up with it. But God is a holy God. And He must deal with sin. And He will deal with sin, including yours. 
God will deal with your sin. You are not an exception. There isn't, there isn't any. Your, your sin must be dealt with some way. And so because he's a loving God, he sent his son to die on a cross and to give you an alternative, to give you an option to offer to the human race salvation. But many can't cope. And you know what they say, and this is the argument you will get. Remember the most common question? Why doesn't God do something? And we tell them he is and this, that, and the other. But they argue back, you know, I do not believe in a God of judgment. That's what they'll say to you. I do not believe in hell. I don't believe there's a God of judgment because God is a God of love, they will say. And you know what they think? They think that love is the opposite of judgment. That either you judge someone and you're a bad person or you love someone. And fallen nature, just the human race, has a tendency to believe that. And that is completely wrong. Completely and utterly wrong. Let me show you. They see the lost, the world, and many believers see love and judgment as completely opposed. But that's utterly erroneous, you know. Because the truth is this, friends. All true love has got both mercy and judgment. I'm talking about real love. God's love. I had a friend, and he was a close friend, who really did not like this at all. He did not believe that there was any judgment in God. He was just that type. He was in our church for years. And he opposed me on this regularly. And we would talk about it regularly. He worked with people on heroin full time. And one guy that he was working with, his father was really enabling this boy to use heroin. When he would go out and he would be on heroin, the father would take him in and the next day he'd give him money. And the father would say, oh, I, I love my son, you know. And he would give him money and he would give him money and the boy would use heroin and use heroin. And this Christian came to me and he was getting frustrated with the father, you know. And one day he lost his temper a bit. He said, oh, why doesn't he just do something? Aha. <laughs> I said, so you do believe in judgment then? You see? He, that, that Christian worker, had a good love, God's love coming through him. But what was in God's love? Judgment. Judgment. The boy is going wrong. And God's love will always, true love, will bring about a judgment. And that man suddenly realized something about his own thinking. That true love will always judge. Always. And this actually, you see this triangle? That's what Jesus came to earth to tell the world. Jesus came to tell us that I am a God of love. Absolutely. But understand what true love is. Love has mercy within it, but it also has judgment. And because I am a God of love, I've sent my son to die on a cross, to take your punishment and to offer you a way out. If you repent and turn to me, you can have that. That's what the Bible says. And that's your answer to them. When they say, why doesn't God do something? Excuse me, where do you think the mercy comes from? God has done something. God is already, he's, he's way ahead of us. And when they ask you, why doesn't God do something? You tell them God has. In Genesis chapter 6, as we just read, God was so vexed at the wickedness on earth that he flooded the world. What do you want him to do? Do you want him to flood it again? 
Right. Well, the same question actually comes up in Matthew's gospel. Take a look at that a moment. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Matthew 13 and 24. The disciples asked Jesus the very same thing. Why don't you do something? Matthew 13, 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy has done this, he replied. The servants asked, now look at this, this is why don't you do something. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? You want us to do something about it? No, he answered, because while you were pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat also with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest at the end of time. And then I will send the harvesters out first to collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and to gather the good wheat into my barn. The disciples asked Jesus the very same question, why don't you do something? And he gives them a, a gracious answer. I'm waiting. You see, when, you know when the lost say to us, why didn't God stop the planes flying in on 9-11? What they're saying is ultimately is this. Why doesn't God separate good and evil? That's what he should do. Why doesn't God take all the evil out of the world? That's <laughs> the same as they're asking right here. Well, tell me, if God took all evil and all wickedness out of this room, who would be left? Not one. Not one. Very simple. Not one. We all sin. And Jesus basically says that. Don't you understand? Disciples, if I send you out to harvest now, I'll have to destroy the whole world. You want me to destroy wickedness? I would have to wipe out the planet like the flood again. And I'm not going to do that. Why doesn't God do something, they cry. He has. He flooded the earth. He was so vexed that the, 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 the hearts of men were only wicked all the time. And then God himself was grieved at what he had done. And he vowed he would never flood the earth again. Instead, he is given what we call the age of grace or the church age. And all these years went by up until the cross. He has done something. He flooded the earth. You tell them that. Secondly, he is doing something. God is not mocked. A man will reap what he sows. It's a judgment. It's a law. He has done something, and every day, whether you're aware of it or not, do not fret when the wicked man succeeds in his ways, because ultimately God does call him to account. He has in the flood. He is through the law of cause and effect, and he is right now through us. See, God didn't just flood the world, did he? He sent someone called Noah, and he sent Noah to preach for 120 years that there was a rapture coming, that there was something about to happen, and to ask and to command the people to repent, but they ignored him. So God did something before he flooded the earth, and it's the same with you and I as believers in these days. God sends you out as Noah to preach about what is coming up, to tell your family, to tell your workmates, about the end of the world which is at hand. That is now our job. See, no matter what you might say 
about the law of cause and effect and how it's terrible to see that Afghani boy killed. Well, no matter what we might say about it, one thing remains true is this. God was willing to take his own medicine. And as he imposed that law on the human race and it's on your life and mine, he also took it upon himself. Because you sinned, he had to be crucified. Cause and effect. You caused it, he bore it, and he offers you life through it. Oh, God has done something. He is doing something. And ultimately, God will do something. And every wrong deed that has ever been done on this planet will eventually be called to account. Turn to the book of 2 Peter. This is just a fantastic end times book. 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 3. Look at this. 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it is since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, God by, his, by, uh, long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also... Uh, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for, for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's your answer. And when they say to, to you, why doesn't God do something? There's your answer. He's waiting. And God is giving time for all men everywhere to hear the gospel and to come to repentance. And that could be some of you right here tonight maybe for the first time. Don't be as the foolish ones in the days of Noah who ignored right up until the day that Noah was entering that ark and the rain started to fall. Don't be like the five virgins who took their oil for granted, who took their salvation for granted and had a lackadaisical approach to the coming king. But rather you make sure of your own salvation and then you begin, as Noah, to tell people of the days in which we live and cause them to turn to God too. Consider, therefore, look at me, consider the goodness and severity of God. The goodness, he sent his son to die for you. The severity, he's a just and holy God. And your sin like everyone else's sin, will be dealt with. So you need to hand it over to Christ. Either he takes it and you get acquitted, or that sin will take you down to what the scriptures term hell, eternal separation from God. Don't let that happen to you.
Would you bow your heads a moment? I'm going to give a moment for anyone here who may not be saved. Maybe you've never just repented properly and fully in your life. And in light of what we're looking at right now, it wouldn't be right to let you go without giving you that opportunity. So if you want to repent tonight from all sin, say, Jesus, I, I have been foolish and I want to turn to you. Would you receive? Just raise your hand up high and I'll come and pray with you at the end of this meeting. Hallelujah. Jesus. Is there anyone here? Hallelujah. Just invite the worship team. Lord, would you help us to stay focused in these last days? I thank you for the example of Honorable Noah, who heeded your word, who heeded the impending doom that came in his day, and you saved him. I pray also that you will save us. Save us, God. Save us, Lord. And give us an assurance within us of all these truths that we will go out from this place and people will be able to pick up that we know you and we know the truth. And we walk in that truth. And God, as, as we transition really from looking at end times things into evangelism, we just give ourselves to you in that. We lift our families who aren't saved. We ask your grace and your mercy to be on us when we're with them. Help us to tell them the truth. Lord, our work colleagues who are not saved, give us the grace and the courage to be bold enough to speak out for our neighbors, Lord. Guide us and use us. Put a new spirit in us in these last days, I pray. In Jesus' name.